You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I uh, have discovered it's a lot more fun when the Bible is to discuss the Bible when it's actually read. Um, so, um, you mean you can't just make up stuff and say this was in the Bible? Well, I mean, you can, but it's not a good idea. And it makes for really boring stories. <laughs> right. So. Or skipping over the hard parts. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, I, just to be point blank honest, this kind of part that we're getting ready to go into is like my least favorite part of the Bible because it's like just a straight on narrative. And yeah, there's other themes we can pick up with it and threads that we can play with. Yeah. But it it's because it is such a complete narrative, there's not a whole lot to comment on. I mean, it's kind of one of those sections where if you can read, you kind of got it. Yeah. Well, so. it, it, and, and this this next section, which we're going to be talking about in a little bit, I it was pretty intense. Like, if you've been paying attention to the story before, uh, you, you just kind of go, okay, what's going to happen? And uh, what's going to happen? But it's kind of like, well, it, well and the, the thing is, the Bible's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like uh, 1984 in a way, <laughs> as far as American society goes. It's a book that it's referenced enough that people kind of get the main jokes and the main references whenever, whenever people parody it or something. But um, if you've never actually really sat down and read it, I mean, mm-hmm. like you might kind of go, oh, it's, a, it's like a political satire. Everyone kind of knows what it is, but <laughs> it's an intense book and there, there's a lot to it. Whenever you really read it, you, it's like, oh my gosh, how did I, how did I not read this? So, yeah. That, well, uh, it, it, it's that, that thing that we do where we convince ourselves we know more than we do. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the other thing. I would encourage listeners who've been reading, you know, following along with us and maybe haven't been going back and rereading or, you know, reading ahead, that you actually sit down and read several of these chapters together. So, you kind of get the feel for the flow and the, the pacing of it. So, you can start to recognize some of those places where you do have that little amp up in intensity mm-hmm. because this this chapter really does amp up the intensity and there's a lot of things that are just happening boom 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 and then there's these little pauses to draw out the tension and you you get to see that the writer yes he's teaching theology and yes he's giving you the history of Israel but he's really a good writer yeah he he does yeah. A, such a great job <laughs> well and like i was talking about with this next section you don't see you don't see the tension you don't see this uh it's like a there's like a scene there where it's really suspenseful, but you won't mm-hmm. notice it. You won't catch it unless you've been paying attention to the rest of the story. Absolutely. Uh, so, um, that well, being said, but uh, we when we last left off, we were in chapter <laughs> eighteen of Second Samuel, and still there. <laughs> yeah, and it's been really good to go through it because last week we did cover we covered the death of Absalom. Mm-hmm. Um, which we're still going to kind of wrap that up, which the second half of the chapter kind of uh, finishes that out. Um, but, you know, it's it's nice to really approach it from looking at what the text actually says, because we mentioned several episodes ago that this this was oftentimes turned into a Bible lesson about, in the church I grew up, about why men don't have long hair. 
Mm-hmm. Then, mm-hmm. And the, the other <laughs> thing, okay, and here's the other thing about it. The way it was taught growing up, all of the stuff, a lot of the stuff that happened as far as the uprising, um, you know, Absalom uh, basically working to dethrone David, most mm-hmm. of that was just glossed over. Right. And it went from, it went from uh, Tamar to the tree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we, the rest of it, we kind of glossed over. Oh, there was this little family skirmish, you know, and, and then, and then uh, he got killed by Joab. What? Right. You know, it, and <laughs> that, that was all we really learned. So, you know, it, it's, it's a really good, uh, refreshing way to go about things to actually look at what was, was in the, uh, the text. You, you mean this isn't a passage critiquing somebody's appearance? That this isn't about looking the right way to be a good Christian? No. Yeah. You know, there's actually more to it than that. You know, and, and I think that's one of the things that we, we have to fight the tendency. And I'm not, you know, throwing stones here because I think this is universal, even of myself. We have to fight the tendency to try to just water this down to something that we can feel good about ourselves. That we can go, oh, well, you know, I don't have long hair, you know, if you're a guy. And so, therefore, I, I'm fine. You know, it, no, Absalom, his heart was so rebellious, and it, it was to the point that he he felt like his father's justice was not sufficient for ruling the kingdom. Now, had David messed up? Absolutely. Nobody's debating that. The Bible doesn't debate it. It doesn't sugarcoat it or whitewash it for you. It puts it out there in all of its gory splendor and says, this is what David did. And yes, Absalom had a right to be upset. And I I think we need to remember that. And he was not a horrible person at the beginning of the story. And I think that's the really shocking part whenever you read this is you see that transformation in him where he allows that rage and bitterness to overtake him to the point that he says, my justice is better than the father's. Now, when I enact justice, he actually becomes worse than his father. And so... Whenever you put that into the rebellious son motif, and you start looking at it in connection with Ezekiel and with Isaiah 14, now it, it's, it opens up a whole new dimension to this cosmic struggle that we've been talking about humanity being a part of and taking you know, some kind of role within because God has allowed us to do that. It, it just it begins to make more sense of the spiritual things because they've been enacted on a physical level. Mm-hmm. There's a story that we can relate to. And if all we're getting out of the story is men shouldn't have long hair, we're missing the point. And so we we really need to be careful with that. And you know, just a, a, okay, so crazy aside, whenever we start talking about things like personal grooming, we need to start thinking about, the realities of living in that time. Right. Barber shears were not invented. We didn't have clippers. Razors were not mass produced. These things were not as big of a deal when that society, because they couldn't be when you're more worried about surviving in Uh a harsh, rugged landscape, who cares about your hair? Keep it out of your eyes and go on with life. So, we just we're being narcissistic whenever we start to think that people should maintain our standards of living. Mm-hmm. 
And that's across the board within the Bible. We really need to take into account the realities of their world. And, you know, I lived in a house in North Carolina that didn't have any electricity or plumbing for a while or running water. It had plumbing, but it wasn't working. And, you know, when you have to do things like go get jugs of water, and I had the convenient, and, and note the word there, convenient plastic jugs with screw-on lids so that I didn't slosh everything around, it, it was still work. Mm-hmm. Now, imagine doing that with wooden buckets, with clay pots, with you know earthen vessels. It becomes a whole different kind of demanding that unless you've kind of lived through it, you don't appreciate the time it takes. Right. So, even keeping a fire going. That's a big deal. And that takes constant attention and work. And so we've got to be very, very careful not to impose modern standards on these people that lived in an entirely different culture and world that, quite frankly, most people don't have any kind of concept of. And I only have what concept I have of it because I went through quote unquote hard times, you know, (laughs) and they were still way more convenient than what these people had to endure. So, my little uh, rant for the day. Sure. It might be the only one. I don't know. We might work in another one later. I mean, uh, so. <laughs> the, the episode is young. Yes, yes. We still have plenty of time. So, yeah, I, I just, you know, be careful when you're reading that you don't just assume that you know what their context was unless you've lived something, you've studied it, you've actually taken time to consider it. Because, I mean, even something as light as simple as light, in our world, it's no big deal. Mm-hmm. It was a major thing back then. So everything becomes more complicated when your survival requires a lot more forethought and planning. And so we don't realize how good we've got it a lot of times. But we are picking up in verses 19 and 20. And I just want to summarize those. I'm not going to take time to read them. And Ahimsa, I can't even practice saying this like 20 times before we recorded. Ahimsa. Let me take a crack at it. Yeah, take a crack. Oh my gosh. Ahimaz. 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 Yeah, Ahimaz. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> There's it's like, like two a mental in block. One, yeah, oh, once I can't pronounce something or think I can't pronounce it, then I get completely stuck. And you just, so. You just got to get a running start at it, I think. Yeah, Ahimaz. Just, just go for it. <laughs> yeah, so Ahimaz, the, the son of Zadok, um, the pre, uh, the, and Zadok, we got to remember, is the priest. He's the priest who has joined with David. Uh, the, the priest who had been with him during all of the running from Saul was Abathar. And Zadok has now joined the crew. And Abathar is still there, but he's kind of starting to fade into the background. And we're going to see why later. But um, this guy was the kid who hid in the well. Uh, the well. Um, my okay oh, yeah. came out there for a second. Yeah, because remember, he uh, was going to bring news to David. He was going to relay what uh, Hushai had ex- had heard from Absalom about the, the plans. And Ahithophel had said, hey, let's go kill David. We're going to attack now. And Hushai goes, no, not a good idea. You need to wait and, you know, just really soft soap <laughs> the whole thing for David. And Ahimaaz was the one who decided that, you know, he was going to be the runner. He was going to take the message. He hid in the well. We had that connection back to Jericho. And uh, he wants to be the runner again. He he wants to be the one who takes David this news, and he's excited about it. Now, Joab stops him 
And Joab cites the reason. The reason is the king's son is dead. Now, this is important. And you want to hang on to this because we're going to come back to this little fact later on. So, the fact that Ahimaaz does not see what he's actually going to be telling the king and doesn't understand the significance of uh, what he's saying to the king is reflected in his speech. Because when he says, I want to take the good news, he's, and I think the ESV, let me grab this here. Uh, the ESV actually says that, um, just carry the news. It, it drops the good. That's so it's kind of lost. Um, and you, you, you miss it unless you go back to the original language because the original language actually has, um, the word basar in um, Hebrew, which is tidings, with the implication of glad tidings. Most of the time, that's actually how it's translated a lot, a lot of times. It's good news. So, the, the Septuagint translates this Hebrew word as euangelion. Oh, I was now, hoping they would say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, the euangelion, which is where we get the gospel. This is, you're running back to say, the enemy has been defeated. We've won. This is the good news. So, Ahimaaz thinks that he is taking David good news. And Joab's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. This is not good news. This is actually pretty bad news. And Joab also knows what happened to the last two messengers that took David news of an enemy's death. Mm -hmm. And we got to remember, Absalom's not just a son at this point. He is the enemy. So, if you remember back to 1 Samuel and the beginning of 2 Samuel, the stories kind of overlap there. The Amalekite who brings David the news that Saul has died, and he, the Amalekite claims that he actually killed Saul. And even though 1 Samuel says that Saul killed himself— but David has this guy executed, and that's in 2 Samuel 1. Now, the sons of Barathite, who are in 2 Samuel 4, they kill Ishbosheth. Now, I know it's been a while, so a little refresher there. Ishbosheth was Saul's grandson, or Saul's son. And as Saul's son, he actually stood to inherit the throne. He posed a legitimate political threat, which we also saw at the beginning of this account with Absalom, where. Um, Saul still has supporters. Saul still has people who, who get mad. You know, Shemi um, came out and cursed David because he'd killed the house of Saul. And so, um, when David gets the news that Ishbosheth, like I said, a legitimate political threat, somebody who could have caused David an, a massive, a, a, a massive, uh, that's a great new word, impressive, massive amount of trouble. David has these guys killed. And not only does he have them killed, he has their hands and feet cut off. He mutilates their body and he has them hung by the pole of Hebron. So, um, you know, when David gets the news that his enemies have been killed, he doesn't always respond well. And the reason why he didn't respond well with Saul and Ishbosheth, well, Saul is because Saul is God's anointed king. He was not anointed in quite the same way as David. We covered that back in those previous episodes. But he's still the anointed king of Israel. Ishbosheth is one of Saul's family. And remember, David had made the promise to protect Saul's family and protect Jonathan's family. So Ishbosheth was covered in, in that promise. So. It makes a lot of sense that Joab says, hey, wait a minute, 
you don't want to be the one to take David this word. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a good possibility if you're the one who shows up on, on scene and you're the one who tells him this, that you're going to die. And so, I think we need to go back and remember what happened in the past and why Joab's being very cautious. And so, we... We need to kind of look at this, too, because I've already brought up, this is as Absalom in the rebellious son motif, this opens some interesting doors for for speculation whenever we're talking about the father's response to the news of the death of the son. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what what is God's response to a son dying? Uh, or a child dying, you know, let's be politically correct and and take the gender out of it. But are we still talking where we connected it before to Ezekiel and Isaiah, which was talking about Satan? Are we just talking about someone who dies? Right. Because we also got to remember Ezekiel tells us very plainly that God wishes no one should perish. That's not his heart. That's not his desire. And so, the idea that God would grieve over a lost child, I think at this point, we're talking humanity. And I think that's borne out by the fact that David's reaction is very human. Right. And even for a moment, he seems to forget that he is the king. He's the the, the symbol and the uh, representative of divine justice within this community. And so, I, I, and I don't want to get too far ahead, but… It, I think it's appropriate to mention it here. Okay. Joab has Joab has to tell David, you're not acting like a king. He has to snap David back to reality. This is your obligation. You you have to act like a king. And you know, and I, I think about all these internet debates and you know, you and I were talking before the show that we keep up with a lot of different people on the internet. Uh, we read a lot of things. We read, read things that we approve of, things we disapprove of, things that um, we think are really good and helpful, and we read things that we completely disagree with, and just to stay informed with what's happening. And there is this section of the Christian world that takes a lot of delight in the destruction of other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's not appropriate. That, that's not appropriate for us. And why? Because God wishes no one would perish. That's not his desire. And yeah. so... Well, I, and the, there's even a verse that says, you know, I take no delight in the death of the wicked. Mm-hmm. That's I mean, an Ezekiel. Yeah. And, yeah, that... And who was... There was, a, there was a real popular writer. What was her name? Rachel Held Evans. Is that mm-hmm. who it was? And yes. I didn't. I didn't follow her. I, I don't really even know much of what she taught. But regardless of what she taught, when she passed, I can't tell you how many people I saw on Twitter, like having a grand time talking about how great it was that she was dead and no longer spreading her lies. I don't. And again, I don't know what she taught. I don't know if they were lies or not. But we're still talking about someone died. And Someone who bears the image of God. Yeah. The image of God has died. Put that into context. Yeah. And, and so, to me, I'm like, I, it doesn't matter what the person ta- taught. It doesn't matter any of that stuff as far as what we're talking about now. She died. Mm-hmm. And we shouldn't be disrespecting her family. We shouldn't 
you know, and I'm not saying we have to immediately make someone a saint as soon as they die. Um, because we've, we've seen that happen with a lot of people in our time that they can be the worst people in the world. And as soon as they die they're everyone just fawns over how great they were, um, you know, at the funeral. But I, I, I don't get this idea that it's okay for Christians to run around bragging about the fact that someone died from terrible medical complications because it was, wasn't it like complications with the flu or something that was just kind of sudden? You know, I have no idea. So, um, I mean, don't don't quote me on that, but it was, it was something that was unexpected because she was still very young. Uh, That I did know. uh, But yeah. So yeah, I'm with you that, that stuff drives me insane. Uh, you know, there's there there are people that I disagree with, and when I when I hear about bad things happening in their lives, I don't immediately go, "Oh, well, they deserved it because they taught things I don't like." Yeah, well, and, and shouldn't our, I can't even imagine that being someone's first reaction. Shouldn't our heart be for repentance? If someone is wrong, we don't wish for their death; we pray for their repentance, mm-hmm. and and that should be our response. It, it should not be to cause the father more grief. And that verse you were talking about is Ezekiel eighteen thirty two. It says, "For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone," declares the Lord God. So turn and live. So you know God's desire, and which should be our desire, is that people choose to live. And so, we shouldn't wish death and destruction on anyone. And yes, I know there's Psalms that talk about, you know, the enemy and overcoming and, and causing great and horrible things. But when you look at the, the context of those, you often find what's going on there is there's this pure human moment where, hey, these are the emotions I'm having, and I'm going to deal with them openly, honestly with God. And now, guess what's happening? He's going to bring my heart back into alignment. Mm-hmm. So we we need to be willing to be brought back into alignment, and not to um, think that we have a better sense of justice than our father, which that was Absalom's sin. So you know mm-hmm. who who are we going to be like? So uh, so anyway, so that's what we <laughs> that's where we end this story. But um, yeah, so let's talk about what makes this next part pretty intense i think we should hold on hold on i'm, I'm not done with this hey okay, well i thought we were okay go ahead no no Cause, because cause I, think, I think we should at some we should do before we get too far along i think we should do like a quick synopsis so we can kind of see like okay. the the tension building and then okay you know i think that would make more sense for how <laughs> it's put together quite honestly because otherwise you're going to lose your your momentum and your tension in this um right so you know because so uh, just a just a quick summary, and I'm not going to get you know too crazy, <laughs> but just the quick summary of the narrative. What happens is is uh, em, a him <laughs> see <laughs> is is not to be deterred. And uh, Joab says, uh, "No, you don't want to do this. Not today. Not good news. Let the mm-hmm. Kushite deliver the news. Um, mm-hmm. This guy who's not part of our group." Let him go do this because it's not good. You're not getting a great reward when you get there. But Ahimaaz is not to be deterred, and he outruns the uh, mm-hmm. the Kushite. The, the Kushite, which I think is really kind of interesting. I, I want to know. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that later. Okay, I have questions. Um, and so the part that really makes this intense, and I was, I was reading through this, the the Watchman on the Wall says, 
hey, somebody's running. And David says, well, if he comes by him, and so you're already expecting that this guy's going to get killed when he gets there, if it's delivering this news to mm-hmm. David, right? Mm-hmm. So you're like, you hear the watchman say, there's someone coming, and he's wanting to know whether or not they need to attack this person before they get to the open wall. Open the gate. Or, yeah, yeah, open the gate or attack him. And David says, well, if it's one person, he's bringing news. It's good. Mm-hmm. And then you see that, oh, no. The, now the Kushite is in view. And you're like, mm-hmm. and the watchman's like, hey, there's another person. So you're like, uh-oh. <laughs> and it just, the tension just ratchets all the way up as you're, as he's getting closer and closer. Because you're like, somebody's about to die. Mm-hmm. And then when, then he gets to David. And who's going to die? Yeah. And which one's going to die? And then, then he gets to David and delivers the news. And there's a lot of tension released in there for this, for, uh, for Ahima uh, Oz. But we, we really, it, it, then it shifts over to David, um, and, and all, and then that's when we get into David mourning over, over Absalom. But let's, let's mm-hmm. go ahead now that I just wanted to like, because I was like, man, if we go through this section by section, we are really going <laughs> to lose the tension of the story by the time we get there. And it's going to be like, oh, we're, we didn't pace it right. So I, the, well, yeah, it's paced it, the way it needs to be for to grab that tension, especially if you've been following the since it's, earlier chapters. It, it's a story that you you want to read through, and you, and you want to read through it, and then you want to go back and digest. Exactly, uh, and that's that's the what you should do with good literature. You read through it once, you get the feel for the the pacing and the tempo, and and you you catch all those little cues that that give you what to anticipate, but then you go back and you pull out the little bits and pieces. But I think one of the things that we need to remember, too, is, um, you know, in the middle of this, in the middle of this conflict where... Ahimaaz wants to bring, I'm like, I'm saying this name with such deliberation right now. Uh, when he wants to bring this good news, what's the purpose of the good news? The king can reclaim his throne. The king can return. Why? Because the rebellious son has been defeated. And if this sounds familiar, it's because we see that aspect of the story played out. Well, you know, when, when the rebellious son, the original rebellious son, as in Satan, uh, is defeated, then, I mean, he has been, but I mean, there's still the fallout afterwards that, you know, already not yet tension that's going on with where we live and inhabit history. Yep. He's going to come back and he's going to reclaim his throne. That's the good news. It's time for the king to take what is his. And so, we see this kind of uh, foreshadowing of what's going to happen with Christ. Now, the thing is, there's also that element of grief within even Christ's story. Why? Because some people are not going to turn and live. They are not going to um, repent and live. So, uh, you know, this is just a microcosm of what's getting ready to happen on a global scale. And who knows when that's going to happen, but, you know, it's something we wait for with anticipation. So, um, verse 21 Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. And the Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Okay, so we got a couple of things going on. The the Septuagint actually sees the Cushite not as a title or descriptor. It actually reads it as a name, as Cushy, which I kind of kind of like. Um, but anyway, uh, in the Masoretic, it is the Cushite. It is a a title. It is a descriptor, and it means 
someone from the land of Cush. And now Cush has been identified variously by different biblical scholars. So you can kind of take your pick. Uh, Nubia it being one op- option, um, Southern Sudan being another option, uh, possibly Ethiopia. And the the thing is, the man has no name. He's not appeared in the story and not been identified in the story anyway. Uh, all we know is that he has some kind of respect for Joab because he bows before Joab. This has led people to speculate that possibly he was a servant or a slave. I, I You know, that's kind of reading our bias into it, the idea that a black man would be a slave. Um, that's That's us imposing our views on it. So I think we would need to be careful there because there's nothing that says he's a servant or a slave. It's just, he is a Cushite. Now, a couple of options that he is from there, but the other option is that he's possibly an Israelite who resembles a Cushite, who has dark skin and is, there's a physical similarity and hence this is how he is identified. So that's, you know, one option that's been thrown out there. And uh, that was actually from Radic. So, I didn't come up with that. But the, the sages, and I thought this was really interesting, the sages read this as praise, okay? To be identified as a Cushite was to be praised. Uh, this is what Rabbi Eleazar wrote. Just as the Cushite is exceptional in his skin, so too was this man remarkable in his principles, for he would not disobey the king's orders even if he were paid a thousand shekels. So, Eleazar believes that the Cushite here in this part of the story is the same servant who was talking to Joab earlier, or the same guy who was uh, talking to Joab earlier and said, hey, I saw Absalom stuck in the tree. And Joab said, why didn't you kill him? I'll, I'll pay you this much money. I'll give you a belt. I'll, I'll give you all this praise if you will just go do it. And this guy's like, no. Mm-mm. The king said that we're supposed to take care of the son. And he he's given direct orders. You know better. And so, Eleazar thinks it's the same guy, uh, which would really be be interesting. But the idea that the Cushite actually is someone who is uh, exceptional, who is worthy of praise. As a matter of fact, um, if you know your Bible well, and a lot of people uh, have missed this, Moses, one of his wives, was a Cushite. And so the Talmud says, just as the Cushite is exceptional in his skin, so is Moses' wife remarkable in her good deeds. So, you know, there, there's this tradition that the Cushite is actually someone who goes, goes above and beyond what's expected of even an Israelite, and that they exceed the Israelite in devotion. So, I thought that was really interesting because I have heard a lot of those, you know, horrible theories that you just, you know, people of different colored skins are cursed by God and only the white man can uh, be accepted by God, which is, I'm editing the, myself. Hey, the, uh, just so you know, the, the theological term for that is, is bunk. Um. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because I wanted to use our father's naval term for that, just to be honest. Uh, oh, so. one, of those not, one of those nautical terms. <laughs> one of those nautical terms, exactly. <laughs> because I, that, it's just ridiculous. And I think the fact that we've lost this little piece of information and in the traditional views of the Kushite and the person with exceptional skin, uh, you know, come on. how 
I think that's great. That that's good news. And that that's good news because there's been so much that has been taken out of context with the nationality and race and ethnicity of different people in the Bible. And, you know, we can talk about whether the paintings of Jesus should be a white Jesus, a black Jesus, a Native American or Chinese Jesus. I don't care. You know, that's that's kind of beside the point. And so um you know, the thing is, we all kind of have that same, um, we have this tendency to want a, a image of Jesus that represents something we can identify with. And one of the things I really do like um, is I think every nationality and every ethnicity who has come to Christianity has recreated these pivotal moments like, uh, you know, the Last Supper. Uh, there's a wonderful painting, I believe it's by uh, Haney, he's a Native American artist, that portrays Jesus as as Native American, surrounded by other Native Americans. And then there's uh, the Christ at Gethsemane uh, painting that's hanging in the Bacon Chapel, and it's a Native American Jesus, and it's it's absolutely gorgeous. And it's not to say oh, well, that the, the foundry, this, the foundry in Norman has a beautiful statue of, of a Native American representation of Jesus, and it's a crucifixion scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but the 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 cross is actually not part of the statue. Yes, you showed me oh, this. Oh my gosh, it's beautiful. So yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, and the the point is, it, does anyone think these are historical representations? Absolutely not. I, I think we all understand that Jesus was not Native American, and I'm I'm talking about that because you know we are Native American. I know the Irish took over with the complexion, but we're we're Native American. I taught at a Native American college for ten years, and so I see these depictions as part of you know my history and, and education. But um, we know they're not historical. But they do allow us a point of contact. And, and I think if we get hung up on the historicity of, of, of a piece of artwork, representational artwork, we're, we're missing the point. The point is, is that Jesus came for everyone. And so, we need to celebrate the fact when somebody finds a way to represent this truth in a way that it doesn't matter what your background is. So... Uh, anyway, that's my little aside as an artist because it really just irks me when people get, <laughs> miss the point because art is about challenging our, our precon- um, preconceptions of reality. And excuse me, quiet on the set. So, <laughs> I always have mom and Ellen in the background. So, now Bergen actually suggests that Joab is taking advantage of somebody who is not an Israelite, who hasn't been around very long. He may not know the history of David and these messengers of death. And he's basically sending the guy who doesn't know any better to face David. And, you know, and that is definitely a possibility. And I, I, this sounds like something Joab would do, because if you'll notice when we keep talking uh, in the next verse, Joab seems to have a certain amount of affection for Ahimazah. Um, anyway, the son of Zadok. So, um, verse 22, Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? So, Alter translates this just a little different. He says, Why should you run my son when yours are not welcome tidings? So, Joab knows that David's not going to be pleased. He's going to be upset. And we know why. And so, Bergen also notes that this guy's, you know, the kid's enthusiasm to go tell David this 
news kind of bewilders Joab just a little bit. He doesn't get why he would want to do this. Now, the, the sages suggest that there's a possibility that Ahimaaz wants to be the friend, to be the, the, the familiar face who breaks the bad news gently to the king. Uh, we're going to see why that's probably not the case later, but that is one suggestion. Now, you notice that Joab actually calls him my son. And how are we going to, to read, you know, what are we going to read into that? Because we do have some possibilities there. One is, you know, Joab's the general of the army. And a good general cares about the well-being and the safety of those who are under his command. So, there's, there's possibly that. But then there's kind of, well, but he doesn't seem to worry about the well-being of the Cushite too much. So, um, <clears throat> the, the other possibility is that, you know, this... Ahimaaz was the heir apparent for the high priesthood. And so, you got to protect that guy. You need the high priest. Who else is going to carry out the rituals in the, in the temple? And David's whole reign is built on the idea that God has appointed him, or the truth that God has appointed him. God is sustaining his rule, and that the, the health of the kingdom is based on the spiritual health of the king. Who's responsible for that? That's the priest, specifically the high priest. So, in protecting this guy, Joab is actually protecting David, which I think makes a little bit more sense than just him being a general who wants to keep his troops safe. So, verse 23, Ahimaaz repeats, come what may, he said, I will run. So, Joab said to him, "It's run, and Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain. Now, the Cushite is running through the forest of Ephraim, and we talked about this. This is the forts along the, the banks of the Jordan. This is hilly country. There's a lot of gorges and ravines. It's a more challenging route for anyone to run, where Ahimaaz is going by the plain, the slower portion of Jordan. It's a much smoother route. It's longer, but it's not as challenging. And so, there's kind of this, this idea that this guy had already figured out his path. He he knew how to get there first, and he was just wanting Joab to say the word. So, verse 24. Now, David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. Okay, so, between the gates. In most of these cities, in a lot of these cities, there were two sets of, of walls. There was a, an outer wall and an inner wall, and the idea being that if an enemy came and breached the outer wall, and they got the troops in there inside the outer wall, then they're trapped between the outer and the inner wall, and they're actually easier pickings than if they're just spread out over a plane trying to, to attack a city. And so, they'd have these two sets of gates, David's between them. And a lot of the story has to do with that in-between state. Remember, Absalom was suspended between heaven and earth. Mm -hmm. And so, the, the idea that nothing's quite settled yet. Everything's still kind of up in the air. It's in a state of flux. So, at the beginning of the battle, David had stood beside or at the hand of the gate. Now, he sits. And if you remember the last guy who sat by the gate um, whenever he was waiting for news of war with his sons, that was Eli. And so, there's even a little extra tension if you know the story and you remember that fact that Eli was sitting by the gate waiting for news of the battle that his sons were engaged in. 
because his sons had stolen, or not stolen, but taken the ark into battle. And when Eli gets the news, what happens, he falls over backwards, and he breaks his neck, and he dies. And so, there is that element to the story that what's going to happen with David? Is he actually going to be able to, to survive this? And the watchman, we're told, is up on the roof, and he lifts up his eyes. He looks. He sees. What does he see? He sees a runner who's got good news, or supposedly might have good news. And, and there's this element that possibly what the writer is trying to remind you of is all of this started when what? When David was on the roof and he looked out and what did he see? He saw a woman alone. And so, if David had never been on the roof, now we wouldn't need a watchman on the roof here. So, this story, all of the, the chaos that's going on, isn't because Absalom just decided to lose his mind. It begins when David actually forgets his place as a king. Mm -hmm. So, verse 25, the watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. Again, the ESV drops the, the implied good there. But, and then it, the verse continues, as he drew nearer and nearer. So, you've got that wonderful little... Um, you know, here he comes. What's going to happen? Kind of moment with the I, writer. I, I have, I have in my in my mind, and this is terrible. The the Monty Python and the Holy Grail. There's the scene where the guy's running toward the castle, and they just keep showing the same clip, <laughs> as and then cutting back to the guards watching him approach. <laughs> that's that's what I have in my mind on this one. It's like nearer, nearer. Okay, I, I know I'll, that's terrible, but <laughs> well, I I will make my admission because my my inappropriate or, or less than referent uh, thought comes up in a, in a next verse. Uh, but you know the reasoning behind David's words really show that he was a warrior. He was familiar with battle. When um, when you sent one runner back, it's news. When everybody comes running back, then they're just running for their lives. It's retreat. It's, it, yeah, it, exactly. Exactly. Soldiers move in groups. Messengers come alone. So David's like, you know, this is this is logical. This this makes sense. And um, so the writer, you know, he just builds a suspense. And we're going to read verses twenty six and twenty seven together. And it says, and the watchman said, see another man running alone. And the king says, he also brings. And again, the implied good is is dropped news. Uh, the watchman said, and I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man and he comes with good news. Okay. This is where my, <laughs> how does he know? I mean, come on. How many people can you tell who they are just by their, you know, them running at a great distance and you're seeing just a silhouette. So I'm like, what kind of run did this guy have? So I had like the image of the guy. There's a show and I could not place it where he's like running with his hands up, just screaming all the way. Um, well, <laughs> was that the money? one? I, I don't think that is. But no, I um, I actually can say like I work. I work on a, at a school. We have 65 acres. <laughs> and I can almost always identify our staff from like halfway across campus. So, well, I mean, I kind of get that. Well, and there's, there is that element that Ahimaaz was that well known and he seems to be 
a good runner. I mean, he's the guy he was chosen to run with the news to David initially. And now he, he'd already picked out his path to get back to David with this next bit of news. So, I mean, maybe he's just known. And, and we need to remember, running was a skill, not just something you did for health and entertainment, which I don't understand even today. But it was a skill that was prized in this um, in this kind of culture because how else do you get news to people? And running is You're, hard. Have you tried running? As it's little hard. as possible. No. Mm, 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 mm. Yeah. No, I there's a reason. I turn all red. I get out of breath. <laughs> I, I <mean>, sweat. <laughs> terrible. I accomplish nothing uh, <laughs> other than just make myself grumpy and hungry. So, um, yeah. It, but it, when you realize that it, it is a skill. So there, there is some level, you know, yeah, I'm making fun of the fact that, that this guy can pick him out of everybody else. But at the same time, when you realize that it is something necessary within that culture, it makes a little bit more sense. And so that's the reason why we've got to be careful not to impose our modernist worldviews on scripture. But so basically what's going on here, two is still too few of a men, a number, uh, too small of a number to indicate bad news. So, David is still saying, hey, this this is still good news. And um, David equates the integrity and the um, character of Ahamaz with the, um, the quality of the news that he's going to bring. He's a good man, so he's going to bring good news. Now, I think that's a really interesting thing because if we think about it, good people should bring good news or the good news should create good people who can then share the good news. And so when we're talking about goodness as a quality, uh, as a characteristic of a person, there's some interesting things there. Uh, John Walton actually points out that in all the ancient Near Eastern gods, only the God of Israel is described as good. And that's their own literature. I mean, this is not people looking back. This is the people writing about God in those moments or the, the other gods in those moments where they were actively worshipped. So, their own mythologies don't even acknowledge these foreign pagan gods as good. Only the Bible acknowledges the God of Israel as good. Mm-hmm. So, I think that's really interesting that, you know, goodness is a celebrated feature within God and as imitators of Christ who is God shouldn't we also be good? And shouldn't people look at us and go, the news is going to be good. This is what they've got to offer because of this is their character. This is their, their, um, who they are. So, um, we also need to remember too, that when Ahimaaz brought David news before, it was good in the sense that it was actionable intelligence that allowed David to make good decisions. And what was the news? Well, Ahithophel wants to come kill you tonight. Who should I talk to him out of it? You need to move. So, verse 28, Ahimaaz uh, cried to the king, all is well. Literally, he says, shalom, which is nothing broken, nothing missing. All is well, shalom. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the man who raised their hand against my Lord, the King. So, he's very much speaking from his perspective. From his perspective, David being on the king, uh, being on the throne is a good thing. So, the death of someone who threatens that is a good thing. 
And he says to David, Shalom, nothing broken, nothing missing. Well, we know David's home is broken. We have two sons missing. We effectively have a daughter missing. David's life isn't Shalom. You know, nothing is right. His kingdom has been fractured. His kingdom has just been involved in this civil war where a lot of people joined his son to try to kill him. So, when Ahimaaz is speaking here, he is actually, um, he is saying there's a problem here. And so, um, Nathan, we've got a little technical problem here. Oh, what's going on? Because my computer just decided that it says it's going to go to sleep if I don't get it plugged in soon. Oh, okay. So, um, what do we want to do here? I don't know. Um, you know what? See if we can go ahead. We'll do a quick wrap up. We'll just be a little short and we'll finish it next week. Okay. I know that's, I know it's probably disappointing to everyone, but, um, we're, we're, we're kind of having, yeah, we've been having some technical issues over the last few weeks and I do apologize to everyone. We, we do our best to, to put out a quality show. Um, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. And there, I think I just lost Emily. Um, so everyone, thanks for joining us. Uh, I do apologize. This is kind of a weird, uh, weird way to end things, but we'll just, you know, you'll have uh, some suspense to look forward to much like the rest of the chapter. But in the meantime, um, we'll be back next week. We'll try to get a quality show. Um, and, uh, I hope you enjoyed what we talked about so far. If you want to be part of the conversation, ravencreeksc.com is where you can find us, find the show, find other people that we uh, enjoy and want to support. Um, Ravencreeksc on all the social media, and uh, that's where you can find us, and we'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye. Podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.